Welcome to Empathy Media, the podcast exploring empathy in action. The Ardlerian Summer School is held every year in the UK, dedicated to exploring the ideas of the 20th century psychologist Alfred Ardler. Ardler's thinking has, seems to me, a very direct relevance to how we live today. And this year, I had the opportunity to talk to the president of the Ardlerian Society, Dr Lillian Beattie. Now in her 80s, she can look back on a long, fascinating life of connection to the world of Alfred Adler, which began when she was a teenager. Yes, Adler did come into the picture. As a teenager, because I was an only child, I was not left in the country when my parents went up to the um, Friends Society meeting house or Adlerian Society meetings. I went to, and I used to sit on the windowsill, and I watched all these people, and I thought, my goodness, you know, who was all, they were always arguing. My father was the chairman, and he used to say, I think we've heard enough of this. Perhaps somebody else would like to make a contribution. Um, but I did get an opportunity to meet a lot of people who had met Adler. And so, yes, I suppose in that sense, I was beginning to uh, be imbibed into that family, that sort of tribe, if you like. And, um, but at some point in your life, Adler's come in in a big way, because here you are today. My father, for my 21st birthday, gave me uh, the membership of the Ardlerian Society, which I didn't want. When I was 28 and working in public health, I was invited to give a talk at the Ardlerian Society. And I said, well, the, and I thought, oh. but I didn't know I was a good storyteller. So I thought the only thing I can do is to tell stories. And of course I was working with families and I had a lot of stories about families and working with them. And my father used to give me odd advice as well, and my mother certainly was very prepared to. So I was being given Ardlerian guidance without it being Ardlerian guidance. Um, and it was working. So I went up and I gave the talk. Um, but there was no mention about Ardler. One of the questions was, I haven't heard Ardler's work or name mentioned enough throughout this. The chairman then moved in and said, I think we've had a, whatever it was of, you know, the sort of work that can be done in this way. Bless him. Um, but Herr to Orgler, who was known as the um, standard bearer of Adler's psychology, t teetered up to my, the, the podium that I was standing behind. Now she spoke English with such a rich German accent, you could never understand what she said, but I understood what she said, because when she spoke to me, she peered over the podium. Lillian, she said, how wonderful it is to know that the work of Alfred Arthur is being carried on in the clinics. That, I think, is when the light switched on. That if she could feel that, then there was something that I was doing. And it was after that that I began to get more involved. I mean, I'd been to summer schools as a teenager, but it was just being a child. It's a bit like the children who come here. Mm. Um, yes. Uh, and um, so I went to one or two seminars. I met uh, Dr. Moore, who was working in London. Thought I ought to go and do some work with him. I couldn't. Um, because he said, I'm using individual psychology in my practice in the hospital. You might like that. I didn't. And then there was a, a, a consultant from New York who said, why don't you come and visit? And I can't. I said I can't, and I didn't. Um, and I think it was, I could have done, I, I could have gone for a couple of weeks, but I didn't. I wasn't ready for it, I suppose. 
No, it would have been, let me think. I would have been in my late 30s and a man called Manfred Sonstegard came over from the States. He'd been giving a lecture in London the year before. A friend of the family, Tony Towns, invited him to come into her school to do a demonstration. I had the three-line whip to go up. I went up with a health visitor, walked in. We were late because we were coming up from Buckinghamshire. <laughs> We'd been working, we had to get up there. And uh, it, the whole thing seemed to be in disarray. The parents were standing there, and they looked very correct, contained people. There was a son standing there, correct, contained people. And there was another boy prowling. And Manfred Sanskar turned to him and said, have you decided what you'd like to be when you grow up? Yes, I have, don't tell me, he said, I would like to guess. I think you would like to be an architect. Oh yes, he said, I would like to build the longest bridge in the world and I would like to get to the other side. And I thought to myself, so would I if I was a child in that family. And I thought, how did he know that, Sonstegar? He had a free week the following week. I invited him out to come with me into the clinics and schools. He did some demonstrations, said he would come back, give us two weeks training, and that was it, and that's what set us off. And that would have been... 1978, as late as that after all of the other. Um, and from then he trained us. He didn't give us theory, he trained us on the job in a goldfish bowl with people from the local schools and health visitors coming in to watch. And we had to start with teenagers and then we moved on to using the typical day with families. Uh, it was wonderful. So take us to one of those early sessions and what you were seeing and what you were learning. So the teenagers come in what well, happens? what we had to do was to listen to them and to um, really take them through what their interests were, what it was like at school and what it was like at home, and uh, if they had any concerns, and they all had concerns of some kind or another. And I happened to have the son of the person who ended up starting the work that we did in Wendover. Um, and he was a second child and he was excuse me, using this, line, this, this particular phrase, he was as bloody-minded as anybody could be. I liked the boy. But he was having terrible problems with his teachers at school because they had no respect for, the, for the, their pupils and they couldn't teach. And yet they expected respect from their pupils and good results. And I said, was there anything at school that he enjoyed doing? And he said he enjoyed playing rugby. And what was it about rugby? Well, you know, you're on the field and you're the instigators. I also said, asked him, because we were advised to ask, what his favourite book was. And it was Gobolino, the witch's cat, who was always in trouble. But what was it about Gobolino that he liked? Well, Gobolino always managed to get out of it. He always found a way of solving his problems. So I said, um, OK, and you say you have a problem with your teachers. And Gobolino was a good problem solver. When you describe the way you play on a rugby pitch, you're a very good problem solver. So how do you think you can take what you use on, the, on your uh, rugby pitch into your classroom? And he looked at me. Because he was disciplined on the rugby pitch by the rules of the game. He subjected himself to the rules of the game. 
And he realized that, that he didn't have to lose that autonomy when he was subjecting himself to the rules of these people that he had no respect for. And everybody in the group was aghast. You know, where did that come from? I don't know where it came from. But I presume it was the same principle I was using that I had all my life, which was look at the person, see what it's like for them, see how you can do that. And he came back and he gave us training. And he said, when I come back again in September, I want to see a family education centre running. And that was where it started. And then people began to see what my friend Sheila Fairbrother was doing as a physiotherapist with children and what I was doing in the clinics. And they wanted to know, they wanted some training. So we said, okay, we'll start training. By that time, I'd been invited to go over to Israel to do an eight-week intensive training. And I managed to get eight weeks paid leave of absence to go because there was a school for families and I could bring something back to use something in the child health. And, and that was inspirational. And T. Dreikers was there, so we did art therapy. And that summer, we went to Badgestein to a Nekasi and she was there again. So I did more of the art therapy. And in Israel, they'd said to me, Lillian, when you go home, stop practicing medicine and start working creatively. And that was the beginning of me moving out into really working creatively because it just, it makes such sense. <laughs> and um, so What does that mean, working more creatively? What, well, what? I didn't know, but I think it was actually working with, say, art or storytelling or whatever, you know, using the, more to do with um, metaphor than fact or science. Um, but I, li I liked working, using it best at that time when I was working with children developmentally and taking them through their exercises um, and just saying to the parents, you know, is there anything you'd like to tell me? And they say, well, bloody blah, blah, we have a problem at mealtimes. And you look at this delectable child and think, oh yes, he's setting up a power struggle brilliantly. And then just going into the standard operational um, um, you know, recommendation um, and saying to the parents, how do you deal with it? And of course they get locked in a battle. Uh, had you ever thought of taking your sail out of their wind? And offering them a choice. And if they want to stay at the table, they eat. And if they don't want to stay at the table and eat, if they just want to play you know, musical instruments down the table, suggest that they leave and move their food away and give them nothing until the next meal time. And that can all be done in 10 minutes. Because the four mistaken goals of disturbing behaviour in children that Dreikers evaluated, superb tool. So this is all going on. And it but just to some people listening to you might think, well, you make it sound very easy. I mean, the, the families I know, the families I'm involved with, the people who have mental health problems, go to this kind of um, psychiatrist, this kind of therapist, have tried this kind of thing. It's all very complicated. There's a tremendous amount of theories whether from Freud or from Jung or from someone Which are else. Which fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. The thing about Adlerian practice is, it's actually simple. It's common sense, simple, looking at interactions, seeing where the mistaken attitudes are, monitoring your response to them, and then looking at how you can actually enable cooperation to take place without being judgmental. It's not easy but it is actually fundamentally simple. Uh, and I can't say more than that. I mean, what, you were at the lecture this morning. Mm -hmm. You saw the lovely little bits of Adler underneath. And those two simple premises were underneath all the rest. One of them seems to be that we all need to belong. 
Oh, yes. What would you say about that? Well, belonging is natural. Um, in uh, the primitive societies, when the baby is born, it is not taken away from the mother until it is attached to a breast. Well, the cord is not cut until the, breast, the baby is attached to the breast, and then the cord is cut. And then with the baby at the breast, the afterbirth comes out naturally. It's a natural physiological um, uh, situation. Uh, we don't do that in the West. We give people cesareans uh, far too easily. Babies are whipped away and wrapped up and put in cots a mile away from the parent. Um, uh, the parents have been given uh, sedatives of one kind or another, so they're a bit zonked. And so what do we do? The very beginning of their lives, where they need to be here, they're there on their own. Now, Adler said that um, the development of uh, awareness, if you like, of relationship with others, and the beginning of what he called Gemeinschaftsgefühl, starts at the mother's breast. Actually, it starts here, before the child is born, because the attitude of the mother and the relationships around do very strongly influence the development inside. And there is the brain in there, not a verbal brain, but a brain that is already beginning to monitor experience. Um, and so it's very important that the child learns the meaning of social interest. I think social awareness is, I prefer, actually, or social feeling. Um, so what do you mean by social awareness? Well, it's just belonging to the common wheel. Socially aware that you're not an isolated entity, that you're actually part of a whole inter interactive belonging. And it's learnt at the mother's breast or on her knee. And uh, where the parents have it, the babies will develop. Really, they will thrive. They're much more likely to thrive than the ones where the parents are more inhibited. And it's not that they're bad parents. They don't understand. They don't know. They haven't learnt it. They haven't experienced it. So, um, what else do you want to know about that? But what, is it, what does it mean for an adult then who comes to you and you see there's a lack of belonging there? How does that manifest itself and how can it be turned around? <laughs> um, well, it can manifest physically actually. Because Adler said, of course, that where we have private logic, where we um, uh, have got fixed ideas that uh, are protective, um, we're not living naturally and freely, uh, collaboratively, um, with well-being, and, uh, <laughs> and it is actually unconditional love. It's not uh, possessive love or sexual love or anything like that. It's just, you know, love is the interaction of equals. And if I want to be okay, then we all have to be okay. And so that being longing and making contribution, and you see children who have that, they're amazing. Um, and uh, so uh, as one grows up, you can see people, well, you can see it with children. Um, yes. It starts in childhood. Because I'm thinking once again about migraine and a child who was having terrible temper tantrums at school uh, because she'd met a teacher who was the immovable object. And uh, um, she didn't feel that she was getting the attention she merited because she did get good attention at home. And um, she was having these terrible headaches as well. And the paediatrician said, see what you can do. And of course she was angry. 
at home, she was considered, she was given a right of opinion, she felt a sense of belonging, she was an only child, she had to come into a mainstream school with lots of other children who were more needy than she was, but she wanted the same attention as they got, but she didn't get it. She hated her teacher. And of course she was bottling the anger. Mm -hmm. And so it manifested migraines. So we looked at how she could actually deal with that anger. And we looked at the reality of it as well, which was she was a bright child. And did she have the same needs as the others? Yes, she did, socially, but not academically. Um, and uh, she decided that um, it was probably a good idea to run around the playground. Just go out and absolutely run it off and allow herself to be angry. That it was all right to be angry because it shouldn't be like this. And that she wasn't wrong in needing or wanting what everybody else had. She didn't want it to be above them, but well, um, but I did say to her mother, I think you may find that your daughter will not be quite so obedient at home. Because she was learning how to express what she really felt. Um, the migraines went. She came back three weeks later. She had another migraine. Pediatrician came along and said, how did you manage to do this? But she, the child had been heard. She had realised what it was that was happening. She was being a good girl because she was a good girl at home. She wasn't expressing anger. She was being allowed to be angry. And of course, there were a the few slam drawers and a feeling like that. But I explained to the mother that, um, how she could handle it, and she did. And that was it. And that fascinated me because I had been told by a therapist that this, this sort of intervention could work with migraine because headaches are actually when we don't want to think anymore. And so we're blocking it because we're afraid that if we express what it is that we need to express, it will be harmful. It's no different when you have adults. They come with the same symptoms, the same concerns, the same fears. And all they need really in the end is to be listened to, to be heard and for us to begin to, and to enable them to get in touch with themselves with um, the fears that they have and the inhibitors. Now, Ardler comes in with a lovely technique, the three portals to the psyche, family constellation. Not the ordinal position in the family, but the position that children feel that they have in the family, which is constellation, stars in a constellation. Um, and that's fascinating because, by golly, eldest children have a very different experience from number two in the family, who has a different experience when number three comes, who has a very different experience from those two. Only children don't have the same experience. And youngest, of course. So that's their environment. That's what they're having to deal with in order to find their place. Um, early recollections, the first one that they bring usually being the most significant. So, sorry, explain a bit more, how does this work? You have someone come to see you and you ask them for an early recollection, is that how it works? Well, you don't go straight away, you listen to them first, you hear the problem. Mm. You begin to say, well, what would you like to, you know, work on, whatever. Mm. And uh, do you mind if I, whatever. Um, and I very quickly move into that actually, probably more quickly than many do. Um, because I have found, I suppose I did find, just working on the medical side, that people very quickly seem to feel relaxed. Because I was interested in them, and I suppose that's what I've learnt at home. 
to listen and, and to enable them to feel that I was there for them 100%. Um, in fact, if you talk to Pam Bridgman, she'll tell you stories about the clinic. I won't. She will. <laughs> but um, this is almost embarrassing in a way. But anyway, um, and then of course you, you, you always ask what position you come in the family and it becomes a dialogue, always a dialogue. And you just enable them to look at what it was like and, you know, who was the brightest, who was father, mother's favourite, father's favourite. Um, and how well did you do at school and what were your best subjects? You begin to build a picture. Um, but then to ask for an early recollection. Of course, by the time you've done all that talking and they think, oh gosh, this is nice, somebody's listening to me. I mean, people do like to talk about themselves, but they don't want to be judged. And what's the point of the early recollection? Well, the early recollection will actually show you an incident in childhood that is fixed in their mind and therefore it's part of their blueprint for living. Uh, and it, you can look at the, the relationships in it, what's happening in it, how the child's feeling in it, whether they're feeling absolutely pleased because they've managed to achieve something or absolutely desperate because something's happened and they feel that they're, they're totally to blame or whatever. Um, and it highlights, and it will usually find, you ties it in, it ties in with the problem they come in with because they're, all problems really fundamentally are problems in relationship. Um, and they begin to see it, of course, it's for them to begin to see how does this relate. Oh gosh. And of course dreams are even more delectable because they don't carry the um, camouflage that we put on the here and now conversations, they just are. And, and what you're looking at is how the person feels about themselves in relation to the world and the, their movement in it. You mentioned a third, I think you said the first one was the family structure. Constellation, yeah. constellation. The constellation. Not a structure. Constellations are moving. Moving, okay. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> I love working with that, especially with the Irish, with large families. Aye, aye. Yes. And the second one was the early recollection. Oh, yeah, the third one are dreams. A third one was dreams, right. And you work with dreams in a kind of a Freudian way, or is it completely different? I work with dreams in whatever way actually people want to work with them. I mean, some people like to write them down. Uh, some people just like to tell you them. Some people like to put them into pictures. I think it's very nice if they can actually portray them visually. Because um, so, then they can look at them, as opposed to telling them. In fact, I do like working both with story and with picture, because um, it's something that they are actually doing more actively, mm. um, particularly children. And, um, and of course, you, you get this... Um, the more bizarre presentations. I mean, dreams are fascinating. You know, like the person who said, oh, do you know, I, I, I dreamt the other day. And it was interesting, because I dreamt about a, a unicorn, a beautiful unicorn. It's a lovely story, this one. Standing at the top of the hill. And it's standing at the top of the hill, and do you know, that unicorn, it was a young unicorn, and It was so beautiful. It got to the top of the hill and it, it could survey everything. And then it heard some rustling. 
down lower down in the hill and amongst some leaves. And when it looked down, there was a tiger prowling, and it knew it wasn't safe. Now, can you imagine what sort of problem that person would have? Whenever I'm successful and really think I've achieved something, something's going to come and take it away. Because that's the movement. Yeah. The other thing I've been picking up from listening to you and your colleagues is that sometimes the problem with our private logic is, or our strategy for living is it can work very well, but then we overdo it. We overcompensate and then... then it becomes a negative. Is that, have I got that right? Well, of course it is, because <laughs> we are creative individuals and we find a way of survival and we find the ways of survival when we're very small uh, and we carry them into adult life. And if we're more or less on the useful side of life, according to Alfred Adler, 52, 48, more or less, then that's fine. You don't have to be perfect. However, uh, when we really are very discouraged and we feel impotent, we might find something that is idealistic but not actually contributive. It's like, um, well, Mir talks about the pole, the slippery pole and the ladder that you go up. And if you're up there, I see it in a way that when you're feeling inferior and you see everybody else on that line, you're hostile. You don't have a place. So you think, okay, I'll show you. And there are various ways of I'll show you. And you find a compensatory movement. You know, if I'm top of the class all the time, I'll be fine. Or, uh, you know, I can only um, be acceptable if I'm the most beautiful girl in the room, or whatever it is, whatever. It's an overcompensation. Me only. Me, me. You're still hostile and you're still afraid. Okay. But it was a good strategy. I mean, my attitude is, was a very good reason why you learned to do that. You needed it then. But why, where, where, where does it find you now? Had you ever thought of whatever, whatever? But if you're going to be in therapy or with people over a length of time, and, and really I think the most important thing, and I think we're seeing it with Frank Walton, you model the being, not the understanding or anything else, you model the being so that they feel accepted, they feel equal, and so as they feel equal, they can sort of feel it doesn't matter whether they make a fool of themselves or anything, they can come out with anything and work with it, because really it's a question of playing. I mean, for me it's a dance. So looking at the Adlerian Society today and the, the week we've just had, how would you characterise its importance and, and what, what are your hopes for its future? Well, you see, I don't think the society needs to worry about itself. I think it is the individuals who need to look at how they're living their lives in their own communities. Summer school is a lovely place to come and have a holiday and be refreshed. It's like going to a, 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 health spa, a healthy springs um, because all the springs come up and you get all this you know, interaction and opportunity to grow, etc., etc. Um, me, I think I materialise when I think that people need a bit of encouragement um, and uh, need a little bit of um, yeah, encouragement and tweaking and 
maybe having the odd crazy idea um, and being with them for me and I, that's how, what I want them to learn like we saw now Frank personified living individual psychology it's a being it's not a doing it's a sharing it's a contribution it's knowing when not to contribute it's getting a balance in life and 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 if you begin to understand the theory and the underlying philosophy, it's a beautiful one to work with. How would you characterize it in one sentence? I don't think I can. Uh, one sentence. I think in order to have that being, you have to have come to terms with yourself and your imperfections and to trust yourself despite that. To become sensitive to the quality of contribution that is required in any situation, whether it's helping somebody off a bus or taking a seminar. Um, and openly accepting people as they are, but always looking for ways in which you can uh, encourage them. And encouragement is very specific. It requires a lot of practice, and it has to touch the. If it really is really going to work, it has to touch the button. You can get a lot of encouragement for things that don't quite touch the button, but if you want the, the light to go on, you have to. Arthur could do it in a sentence. And uh, uh, yes, it's not so much talking. It's not so much doing. It's actually being and sharing. But it's his understanding that the thing in life that is, well, it's the ironclad logic. We have to learn how to work together collaboratively for the good of the whole and the well-being of the future. Is that a good enough sentence? It's certainly good enough. Thank you very much, Lynn, indeed. <laughs>